Welcome to the second episode of In Defense Podcast. That music is brought to you courtesy of Vanguard. Check them out. They rip. In this episode, I talk with my friend and co-worker, Allison. We mostly discuss things about sanctuary work, so if that interests you, listen to this. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming over and talking with me. You're welcome. Uh, do you want to start off by... Telling your vegan story? Sure. Um, when I was 12, I stopped eating meat. Um, my oldest sister showed me slaughterhouse footage, and that made me just not want to have anything to do with that. I had no idea about the dairy and egg industry um, until I visited Miyoko's sanctuary, uh, Rancho Compasión, and I met a cow named Erica. And I learned about dairy from her story. And that day I decided to go vegan. And I think that was about the summer of 2017. Um, and yeah, been vegan ever since. That's crazy. You were vegan or vegetarian at 12. Mm-hmm. What did your parents think? Um, they were pretty cool with it because my, like I said, like my oldest sister had already gone vegetarian. Um, so. They were already pretty used to it, and so she helped me a lot with that, uh, navigating what to eat, like how to eat. Um, however, it was just a lot of like grilled cheese and quesadillas. <laughs> but how was it going to school at that age? Bringing did you bring lunch or did you have to eat the school lunches? I my like my mom helped me make lunches and stuff. Um, I was pretty fortunate with having like a flexible hmm. family. Um, but my friends definitely thought it was weird. They were like, you don't eat chicken nuggets and things like that. Like, but Did any of them go vegetarian from you at that age? I actually did, yeah. Um, my friend Cassie um, went vegetarian with me, but I don't think she still is. Uh, I think it lasted maybe like a year. That's unfortunate. You said that you visited uh, Miyoko's sanctuary. Um, how did you become involved in sanctuary work? So again, my oldest sister, Haley, um, she came to Animal Place herself and decided to do the advocacy internship um, in the office. She had just graduated from Berkeley and was looking for something to do in animal rights. And so anyway, she came up here and did an internship, then ended up working here. And she loved it so much, but it just wasn't for her, you know, like nonprofit pay and you know, other things that just didn't work out. But um, a couple years after that, I was really inspired to do something with my life. Like I didn't really want to go to school. I was stuck in a really small and conservative town. And um, so yeah, I thought back to when I came up here and visited Haley while she was out here. And I just wanted to give it a try, so I ended up doing the animal care internship um, in April of 2019. So after your internship, you were so good at what you did, they asked you to stay? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I 
Well, at first I extended the internship. Um, it was only supposed to be two months and then I did one more month because I was enjoying it so much. And then after that third month, I was asked to become a permanent employee. Wow. What do you feel is the hardest part about working at a sanctuary? Um, probably the obvious answer of losing animals that you become really attached to. Like everybody knows what it's like to lose a pet. Um, you know, it's that same feeling, but it happens sometimes multiple times in a month and you're having to go through that kind of loss and all those emotions, but you don't really have the time to grieve. Um, because there's still so many other beings dependent on you. So I think the processing is really hard for me. I believe it was last week, whiskey passed. Right. And that was a hard one. Um, mm -hmm. You and I were both working the AM shift. You found her. Mm -hmm. And then you texted me. And I took that pretty hard. I don't know about you. Yeah. No, it... Well, that was the thing is I was opening the sanctuary and you, you know, you have to be fast mm -hmm. to get things, get the rest of your tasks done. But I go into the stall like any other day and then I found her like that. And I had to just, I wrapped her up in my sweatshirt. I cried and then I just had to keep going. And then, you know, you came in and I had her like wrapped up in a towel and I just you just have to like put it out of your mind so you can keep going but then it, you never really come back to it. Mm -hmm. it or at least I don't like I have a hard time like I put it on a shelf for later but then later never really comes so I feel like I kind of have this built up grief but not just with whiskey like I think that was a good example but you know I've been doing this almost two years now and that shelf is getting full so yeah that's a great way to put it um Whiskey was a chicken, a mm -hmm. hen, um, that everyone really became attached to. Uh, she's really sweet. Mm -hmm. um, Nicholas, I think, was another hard one. For sure. Nicholas was a cow. Nicholas, yeah. He, I wasn't very close to him. I think what affected me the most was seeing everyone else's reaction. But it's also, I feel like it's harder when we have to euthanize an animal and being there for it. For sure. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about what happened to Nicholas and just the kind of the order of events and how it made you feel? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, I think what was really hard about it is we, we did end up deciding to euthanize him because that was ultimately what was best for him. However, it felt a little unexpected, so... Um, yeah, that evening I was with our animal care director and we were going up to give him tramadol. He was on a pain meds um, for his arthritis. He was having some issues, but we had to have two people um, give him those kinds of meds. So we both went up there and we found him on his side. And for ruminant animals, that's really dangerous, especially if they're on their left side. The amount of weight that you know, cows are, and to have that much pressure on their organs is just too much. And it was due to his poor mobility that he fell over. Um, and after that, it was just kind of trying, we were flustered, we were trying to get him up. We called everybody up there. 
um, you know, trying to stay calm, but you're emotional because you're seeing this animal that you're really attached to struggling. And he was just looking at us like he was scared and mm -hmm. we were scared. And so, yeah, I remember coming up to it and he was on his side mm -hmm. screaming and they had the look in his eyes like, yeah, no, yeah. I'm never going to forget that. And we tried to, yeah, we, we used some tarps mm -hmm. to try put under him and lift him up and pick, pick boards. boards. Yeah. Um, but ultimately we have to do what's best for the animals. No, even if it's hard for us. Yeah. Um, and the best decision, like you said, was to euthanize him. Um, well, knowing it could happen again. And if we weren't there, like we don't know how long he was on his side, but it couldn't have been for very long since somebody was up there more recently, but say he was out in a pasture somewhere. Um, and that happened again, then he would have had a slow, painful death and knowing his mobility wasn't going to get better, um, euthanization was, mm -hmm. you know, the best option. Yeah. Unfortunately for us, but it was what was best for him. 100%. That was a hard one, though. When I first started working um, an animal rescue, I wasn't as comfortable with the people I worked with um, or as comfortable with my emotions in general, but I remember losing animals and just being like don't cry don't cry like mm -hmm. you can't cry in front of people and Nicholas um when Nicholas died I think everybody was over the fact that I don't want to cry in front of people like everybody just was hurting and they let it out and I thought that was kind of a special moment even even though it was a hard moment like yeah everybody loved him so much I haven't thought about that really since it happened <laughs> it was on the shelf mm. Summer was another cow yeah, that one. who passed, or we had to euthanize, um, what, a few months prior to that? It yeah. It didn't, didn't seem like too long before that. Then, mm -hmm. um, Jessica was a hard one. She was a goat. Yeah, she was another animal that we had to euthanize. Um, she was very old and it was her time, but yeah, watching them go. I feel like it's... It's hard, yeah. It's very hard. Jessica, at, like, for me, it's easier when you know that they lived, like, a really full life. I think it's really hard when it feels like it shouldn't have happened yet. You know, I feel like that's how I felt about Summer and Nicholas when they had to be euthanized. Um, it was due to the strain that was on their bodies from being bred to get as big as possible, as fast as possible. That's common with all farmed animals, but I think it's frustrating when it just isn't their time. Does that make you mad at people who consume animals? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it just feels like it's fueling the need to do that. And, you know, like, I don't want to pass too much judgment because, you know, I've never, I haven't always been vegan and people I love aren't vegan, but at the same time, it's so apparent what the issue is and as long as there's a need for it we're just still gonna continue to do what we're doing to animals yeah people think that it's all like a glamour glamorous job but we're every day we're faced with what we've done to these animals like the chickens that are emaciated from the amount of eggs that they lay or the um what we call peepers who are bred chickens bred for meat 
um, the strain on their legs and the turkeys, they're just... Yeah, absolutely. Like a lot of the, um, they're called Cornish hens or also known as like broiler hens. They, um, a lot of them are just on pain meds just to be able to walk around and to function. Like they have just like swelling in their feet, their joints, everything's, everything's harder because they're essentially obese. It's carrying around all this extra weight on this tiny frame. It's not meant to hold all that weight or that chickens almost always, 100% of the time, like egg-laying hens pass from reproductive issues. It's always like, oh, it's their time and they get cancer and you just know that you just have to keep them comfortable until they pass, but it's because they're bred to lay so many eggs. It's hard not to um, see what we see and then not be that quote-unquote judgy asshole vegan. Um, I think that if anyone was faced with what we're faced with, (laughs) it'd be hard not to come across that way, but... Well, I think it's so clear to people in sanctuary work or, I mean, you know, vegans obviously are vegan for a reason, but when you are trying to talk to non-vegans about these issues, they, like, I'm kind of using my family as an example. I love them, but they just kind of brush it off and say, oh, like, you're in a bubble, like, you're surrounded by like-minded people, so that's why I feel the way that I do when that has nothing to do with why I feel the way that I do. I feel that way because of the animals and, you know, seeing them for in their good situations, but also in their bad situations. I love them regardless, but it's really hard to try to get that message across to people because you see it so clearly um, and they still have their blinders on. Pigs, farm pigs, have a lot of mobility issues as well. And... um... We have to pay close attention to their feet for their their hooves carrying around all that weight. Um, mm-hmm. That's another. They're just mobility problems. Mm-hmm. Wa- just watching them walk looks painful. Yeah, no, they. I mean, it's six, seven hundred pounds on essentially toenails. They walk on their toes, um, and there's preventative care that you can do, but. The fact that they just, them being themselves, they get that big and they get cracks in their hooves and then those cracks go up into like where there's blood vessels and tissue and if there's dirt in there then it gets infected and then they have an abscess and then, you know, if they were not a sanctuary, they would just die from an infection, but I don't know, it's just, it's really sad to just see how big they get. Mm -hmm. And Molly and Melody are two piglets. Like, they're, I think, both, they just hit their, like, 200-pound mark. But, you know, they're still babies. They're ginormous, but they're babies. And they're just going to keep growing. They're going to keep getting bigger. So with seeing all this stuff, how do you cope with it? We kind of touched on that. You don't, essentially. (laughs) Um, Can you elaborate at all on that? I mean, I'm working on it. I think the longer I've been doing this, I'm trying to figure out what works versus what doesn't. Um, Definitely putting it 
off and just saying you'll deal with it later does not work. Um, so I think just being conscious and letting yourself feel feel it when you can, like, even if it's just that day, like, even if you can't feel it in that moment, like, go back and reflect on your day, and just, I don't know, I kind of, like, do my, like, pay respects to the animals that are there, and know that they got the best care possible, and as far as coping goes, just knowing that I'm doing what I can where I'm at right now for the animals that are here, but once you start thinking about all the other ones that are out there, that's when you start to feel really lost or helpless. We are offered, what is that class that? Oh, we did a compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. Workshop. Yeah. Yeah. But everyone seems to kind of scoff at that idea. I wonder why that is. Um, I think it's that most of the people that get into this work are people that are you know, they have good intentions, but they're not here to think about themselves. They're, you know, when we did that workshop, like, I think we had good intentions for the outcome of it, but all of us were like, we don't have time for this. We spent two, three hours out of the day, a few days a week, talking to this hippie-tippy lady about our feelings and emotions and doing these breathing exercises. And, you know, as great as that can be it didn't feel like a priority when we know that there was so much work that we essentially just weren't doing or it still had to be done but that's three hours out of our day and it just didn't feel important um but I think that's a big issue in general with sanctuary workers is the lack of care for themselves there also seems to be a high turnover rate for sure um I don't know if that's the physical aspect or the emotional. Um, so far, what I've seen, I feel like most people that have quit um, or not lasted very long is because of the physical part. But then there were other caregivers who were more long term that quit that was probably due to the emotional stress. I think that is pretty accurate. Um, I think if you can get past how hard it is physically, and you make it long-term, then then you'll start to deal with the emotional aspect of things. But when you first start out, like, you know, you're not really, you, you don't have an attachment to the animals yet. I mean, it's sad when somebody passes, but you it's not like you've known them very long or, um, you know, you're really faced with a lot of that stuff just because you're kind of at a lower tier. Um, so you're not really exposed to as many like medical things. Um, so yeah, when you're there longer and you're seeing more and it definitely builds up and takes its toll. I mean, I, not that long ago, I was ready to throw in yeah. the towel. I essentially quit and I was ready to go, but, and I just, I felt this urgency. Like I just, I had to go because I just, I couldn't handle it. You know, there was no room for the emotional stress of this job on top of what I was dealing with personally. So it, my solution was just to leave, but I knew, I, I thought about it a little bit longer, but, um, but yeah, I, I couldn't do it. I, <laughs> here I am. Yeah. I, <laughs> so. From what I hear, the usual lifespan of a caregiver is like one to two years. Like yeah. Two I mean, years that's, being kind mm, of the top. Yeah. I mean, 
caregivers in general, not just sanctuary work. That's it's true, typically yeah. six months to a year. Um, and that goes for, you know, taking care of humans, yeah, animals, whatever. Um, that's the lifespan of a caregiver yeah. typically. So, and I think, I do think that's pretty accurate for, um, our more short, short term employees. Um, it makes sense. So now that we've kind of tackled the negative aspects <laughs> or just briefly touched on, on it, um, what is the most rewarding part of working at a sanctuary? Um, I really think it is like when we get a new animal and at first they start out super shy and they're super scared of us and, you know, for good reason the humans weren't kind to them their whole life. Um, but then gaining their trust, you know, putting in the time and the effort and the energy to let them know that we're on their side. Um, and you know, some animals never get there and that's okay. They have that choice and that freedom. And that's what I think is really special about working at a sanctuary is that they're here to live their life and they're not here for me to go up and pet. Mm -hmm. They're, they're here to enjoy the rest of their time here. So I think just being able to create that space and that environment for them is probably at the top of the list for me. Which common traits do you see in people who do sanctuary work? Um, probably being introverted, uh, less interested or inclined to talk and work with other people and definitely animal people. Um, what else? I think just lack of self-love slash self-care. Mm -hmm. Um, just struggling with that in general, just not seeing it as a priority. Um, not really caring about how it affects your life more so that you're here to do a job and if it helps another life then that's what's important and I've, I've seen that with a lot of the people that we work with um I think Animal Place in particular like the people that stick around like just really dedicated individuals it's hard work definitely but. yeah it, it does take a certain type of person to um to do what we do because <laughs> it's physical and emotional is draining um you have to work all hours right now we have some lambs that the feeding is down to just once a night at 1 a.m um and then we are also monitoring a couple animals so we're doing different shifts and our shifts are like three hours each um, yeah so if we're working that day, we know that we're going to also have to go in that night for three hours at some point. Right. So we're all operating on limited sleep. It was snowing and raining this week and cold. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it was, it was, we're short staffed because, yeah. um, one person had a baby. So he's on like half paternity yeah, leave part -time, yeah. and then someone else was out sick and it's just, it's hard. No, yeah. I mean, every week there's something, you know, there's some reason that we're short-staffed or, I don't know, there's always something yeah. going on that makes your job harder. And, like, it's already hard, but then there's always just, like, that cherry on top where it's like, oh, great. <laughs> but, I mean, I think having on-call shifts for me, it's like... You know, we're lucky enough there's enough of us that live on site that yeah. we are able to split it up. We're not on call every single night of the week. 
Um, some on-call shifts are harder than others, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I just drink so much caffeine to <laughs> stay awake during the day and to like feel like I'm functioning properly. But I think that affects how much sleep I'm getting. So even if I'm not on call or, you know, even if I only have a three hour shift, I, I end up just staying up. I'm just like, oh, like I, I can't sleep or like I'm worried about what's going on with the cows. So like, even if I'm not on call, like I'll go run out and check on them. And it just, it just doesn't go away. It's not, you know, on my shifts over at five o'clock, I'm out of here. It's, it doesn't matter. Like you're there until what needs to be done is done. And nothing's ever done. The list is always never ending. Yeah. Like you yeah. said, it's, it's not just a job at all. It's something that we're very passionate about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't be doing it if it wasn't something that I was passionate about. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing it, you know, for how much we get paid. Mm -hmm. You don't get paid very much at nonprofits. That's, um, that, that is, I think that contributes to turnover rate as people are like, this is really, really hard work. I'm exhausted. I'm upset. And I'm not, I don't feel like I'm getting compensated for it. But mm. if you have that attitude, then that's why you're not, it's just not the right job for you. Yeah. hundred percent. You're not, you're not going to give good care if you're doing it for the paycheck. No, absolutely. You do it because you want to be there and you care about mm -hmm. who you're taking care of. This one might be a hard one to answer. I feel like it's a hard one. Let's see. The biggest obstacle in veganism. I have to think about that. Biggest obstacle. Mm -hmm. I think just the stigma. I think that's a big obstacle. I don't know if it's the biggest, but I mean, people hear vegan and they're like, like they're turned off to it for some reason. And it's, I just think it's so strange because people that are vegan are typically pretty compassionate people and they're essentially doing it because they care about something. So why is it so, why is it viewed so negatively? So do you think that a lot of vegans go about it the wrong way? I think a lot of vegans go about it the wrong yeah, way. Yeah. You said that you think that most vegans are, you know, compassionate. I think they're compassionate towards non-human animals, but when it comes to interacting right. with humans, okay, yeah. I feel like they lack some some communication skills well, okay i yeah true i i agree with that i just think it's because of the emotions that they have they don't really know how to sort them like when you see a new documentary or you know you learn something new about animals or you know what am i trying to say like you you learn a new fact and yeah you but share a new it. fact or no not even sharing it it's just you get so angry. You're yeah. so upset and you don't know how to sort those emotions. So you want to blame people for them because people are the reason that these animals are suffering. People can stop these animals suffering. So if everybody just thought the way that we think, everything would be fine. You're totally entitled to feel angry. I understand everybody should be angry. Like we should be outraged at the suffering that is going on in the world, humans, non-humans alike. But in the animal rights community, there's some people that, like you need to be compassionate and you need to be understanding for people to change because change doesn't happen overnight. 
I mean, it can for some people. I, I changed the minute I found out about dairy and eggs. Like I was like, I never want to have anything to do with that ever again. But I realize, and I have, I have realized that a lot of people aren't like that. Um, you know, they're horrified by the reality of those things. However, there's a lot of other things that are intertwined with it, you know, traditions, cultures. For people to make effective change, it needs to be a compassionate message, in my opinion. So that being said, what is your vegan approach? How do you do outreach? Um, you know, I want to do more <laughs> of that. I feel like I've focused so much on just doing what I'm doing. Um, because I, I'm just, confrontation is not my thing. Um, however, I talk to my family a lot about it. Um, I think food is like a huge piece of it. Um, getting people to like what they're going to essentially eat the rest of their life, um, I think is a really good first step to it. Like using my dad as an example, like he was somebody that I would never see stop eating meat, stop doing what he's doing. He loves to fish. Um, he loves cooking in general. So, but a lot of the meals he makes are using animal products, but just by sharing like things that I'm making recipes with him, he like finds the vegan section in the grocery store and gets super excited and sends me and my sisters, um, pictures of the things that he's buying now. And like, so I think him getting to know and getting familiar with the food is what's making a big change for him. Um, and like his habits, because it's, it's what people eat. People would think that you just eat twigs and salad all day. And that's not really the reality. I think through my own experience is seeing people liking the food and that being like, hey, like I can do this. And then they kind of get behind the, oh, like, wow, this is a lot better for the environment. Or wow, like I feel a lot better. Like my ex was, he ate everything when we first met and um, he just was having like really terrible health problems and like stomach pains and things. And I was vegan when we met and I was, I essentially just cooked everything for him and he just ate vegan uh, by proxy and he felt a million times better and it was getting him to enjoy the food and realize that it was better for his health and then he kind of got on the train of the other things like so I think the reason people go vegan um, you know I think there's the three main things environment health and compassion and sometimes they all come together so, but slaughterhouse footage is what turned you vegan or vegetarian initially and then vegan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was super sensitive to the fact that these animals are suffering and like, I just didn't want to contribute to it. But I got so many remarks like, you know, these animals are still going to die whether you eat them or not. And that's true. But, you know, like, that doesn't mean you just keep doing it. It doesn't mean you're just oh, well, it's going to happen anyways. So it, I was disgusted with the fact that, you know, I was, the disassociation was gone at that point. It was, oh, that bacon that I had this morning, like 
that had a face and you know it, it all was like downhill from there but a lot of people are able to keep that distance of you know their food versus it being an animal I think it's hard to say because I feel like it's really easy to do mm-hmm. but I feel like I also am pretty understanding of people trying to change and it just being hard for them I think I'm more patient uh, at times than others. Do you have any stories that you'd like to share about an animal um, that made you feel good? Like, oh, feel good. Yeah, we need um, some. We need some feel good stuff going on here. Um, Joan the sheep. She is the most majestic little creature. She's a tiny black sheep. I don't know her breed, but. Um, She's super, super sweet. She was one of those animals that came here and was really, really shy. And we've established, uh, I feel like, a pretty special bond. And whenever I go out into the pasture or anything, I take a moment and we always touch foreheads. And Mm -hmm. she closes her eyes and I close my eyes and it just feels like... I don't know, it just makes me so happy. (laughs) Like, it feels really special. Um, And Joan is up there on my list of favorites. Um, and then another one would be after we did a large-scale hen rescue when we let all of the birds out of the crates and they were all, they all came from battery cages. Um, this wasn't the free range one that we did, but, um, prior to that, it was a battery cage rescue and these hens lived for two years. They're about to be gassed, um, because of their, they slowed down on egg production and knowing that that was essentially going to be their fate. And then they came here instead and they got to feel the earth on their feet for the first time. And they got to stretch out their wings for the first time. I was incredibly emotional and I just sobbed like uncontrollably. I mean, I was smiling, I was overwhelmed with emotion, but it was just amazing to see these tiny little creatures just running around like they were pecking at the bugs on the ground they were dust bathing like they never got to do that in their whole life but they instinctually knew that like oh I, I i can clean myself this way i can spread my wings i can run around i can decide whether or not i want to be right next to another chicken or not they they lived two years their whole life in a cage getting pooped on crammed next to nine other birds in a tiny metal crate and they got to experience freedom because of sanctuary workers. And I thought that was really, that was really special. Those mm-hmm. are the moments that I never will forget. Do you have, on the other hand, an event that really affected you negatively? Um, if you don't, I'm, it could be Nicholas, which we've already talked about. I think, yeah, um, I would say, yeah, Nicholas was a really, really hard one on me. Um, I noticed I was kind of a lot different the weeks after that um I live on the sanctuary and I he was staying right essentially right in my front yard um so every morning I got to see him and not being able to see him every morning was really hard but I think burying him was really hard um seeing his body and you just have to remind yourself that it's just a shell like he's not in there anymore he's comfortable he's wherever he is but um like seeing him seeing what they look like after they've passed it's not very pretty and 
cows are extremely heavy, so we bury them on the property, but seeing him be dragged into a hole um, was really, really hard. And part of me wishes that I wasn't there for that, but that's just another aspect of it is we have to make sure that all that goes smoothly and, you know, it's done right. So you have to be there for it. But I also still, I do think it's important to be there, you know, start to finish um, for respect for the animals. There's some people that they just, it's too uncomfortable. It's too emotional. And I, I totally understand that. And I respect that. But I think a huge part of paying respects to the animals is being there. Um, until we put the last clump of dirt on their body and say goodbye. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, we have our own kind of, I don't know, I don't want to call it a ritual, but we yeah. have a procedure that we follow whenever we're doing a burial. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really appreciate the way that we do these things. Um, with large animals, we typically bury them that day, um, whereas with hens or you know our rabbits or even like a goat um we would do them all together um we do we have our maintenance guy do dig a six foot hole and we get everybody into the grave and we sit there for a minute before covering them by hand with dirt um I like that moment where everybody's just laying there before we put the dirt on though. Like everybody's sitting around the grave and it's just silent. Sometimes people speak up and say a story um, about one of the animals that's passed. But um, that moment of silence though, I mean, just looking down at everybody resting essentially is I think really powerful um, and important that they got that. I don't know, that funeral, essentially, it was mm -hmm. that time to say goodbye. Um, but when everybody's ready, we take dirt by hand and we bury them until they're completely covered so that when the tractor puts dirt on them, we're not just, you know, dumping rocks and all that heavy dirt directly on their body. It feels like, okay, they're covered. It's a more, like, respectful way to, I don't know, mm -hmm. say goodbye. <laughs> And Kim, Kim, the director, um, usually will share a story about how they came to the sanctuary, and it's usually a pretty emotional thing, um, yeah. hearing how they got there, and just everyone will kind of share a story, a funny story about them. And Yeah. No, it just really makes it, it zooms in on the fact that they're individuals, mm -hmm. and I think that's the most important part is that we are respecting them and treating them like they're individuals. That was a life that either ended on time or it was ended too early. Whatever the case is, they, I don't know, they had people that cared about them and loved them and are saying goodbye to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just super important. And a lot of animals, and a lot of people don't get that. For sure. So I, I, I'm really grateful that that's something that we take the time to do, no matter how busy we are. It's mm -hmm. like, we have a burial. Let's, we're going to carve that time out and pay respects to our babies. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Is there anything else <laughs> yeah. that you would uh, like to add? I think we covered a lot of bases as yeah. far as sanctuary work goes. You yeah. know, the good, the bad. 
the For early. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time coming over and talking with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, I, uh, I don't know how to end this. Volunteer at Sanctuary. Yes. Donate when you can. Um, anything helps. I know people say that about everything, but seriously. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we'll end on that. Volunteer. Volunteer. Donate if you're <laughs> able to. Absolutely. Smash and break chains! Cut and break fucking